Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so Simon Stewart and I just got back from Sea Otter, and we sat down to recap a whole bunch of the most interesting new stuff and most notable trends that we saw at the show and kind of got into it about a whole bunch of stuff, including our thoughts on headset cable routing, the push suspension fork that they were teasing but not yet showing full details on, and a whole lot more stuff, including the proliferation of downhill bikes again, too, after those kind of having a bit of a lull for a few years. So a whole bunch of cool stuff in here and Simon and I just chopping up about bikes. So let's get right to it. Well, Simon, great to sit down and chat again. And we've both just departed Sea Otter and saw a whole lot of interesting new stuff there and kind of have both some specific bits of gear and just some more general trends in the bike industry to talk about. So uh, kind of just dive into our little roundup here. But how are you doing? I'm good. As, as we just chatted before we went live, I got in super late last night and then got hit with the usual Colorado welcome, which was a nuking snowstorm on the way home. <laughs> Yeah, I sent a photo, which uh, visibility looked pretty atrocious, but glad you made it all right. That's all good. If might have been a little more harrowing than you'd hoped for, but all seems to have worked out all right. So that's for the best. And yeah, like I said, I got a lot to cover here, so we probably just get after it. And uh, perhaps top of my list would be the fact that the long rumored Push Industries fork has finally broken cover and uh push is being awfully tight-lipped about the details thus far so not a ton of specifics that we can say about it but they were showing off an inverted single crown fork and um just rather interesting to see them wading into that game and particularly given that they've gone for that particular form factor since we've seen a bunch of attempts at that sort of concept before but they have mostly not really stuck thus far so quite curious to see what pushes up to and what they can pull off there and um the display bikes they had it on were a trek fuel exe and a we are one arrival so kind of mid-travel trail bikey things so i suppose draw what conclusions you will from that on travel and sort of intended use goes but we are very much looking forward to being able to share some more about that one, hopefully sometime soon. We'll see. There's uh, a lot interesting going on with it, as it would appear, and just kind of curious to see what Push can do in that space, since it's a tricky one to break into and just doing something rather different from most of their competitors. So it's going to be quite interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, I think it's I think it's an exciting thing, and and I, I I wouldn't say that the previous inverted forks haven't stuck. I mean, they're just they were always expensive. I mean, that's just the nature of that sort of design. I think, and when you look at the Rockshox um, RS one, which was a full carbon piece, I mean, that's where that price you know was founded. I think more than anything, but that fork really was quite good. <laughs> yeah, but also presumably a somewhat different use case for that making some inferences about the push here yeah. given what they had it mounted to but the rs1 was a short travel cross-country fork and it at least appears that push is going longer travel and burlier with this so bit of a different market and um i mean background on the price i given that we're talking about push i am 
expecting that it is not going to be cheap once again. We'll just have to see on that. But, uh, you know, they've never been one to make things cheap and like doing it in Colorado and so on and so forth. So I was going to say the last the, the last fork that we had that I would say was sort of revolutionary and on the, the fringe of, of everything. And it was super, excuse me, the last very expensive fork we know that came out that didn't fare so well. Right. The trust is, I assume, is where you're going with this. I was going to go down that road a little bit, but, um, it, you know, when you're looking at suspension and um, your ROI on how much you pay for it, yes, there's going to be sort of uh, that form factor and it's really beautiful to look at, which that fork wasn't. So it didn't have that going for it. Um, but also, if it's going to be twice the price or three times the price, how do you quantify if it's going to be that many times better than what's already existing on the market? It's a tricky one. That's why it's a difficult space, like you said, to get into. Yep. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll have to see where push lands on pricing here, but um, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes for them. And we are hoping to get on one in a bit here too. So stay tuned for a whole lot more on that when we're able to talk about it. So that's probably enough on that since details are sparse at the moment. But where to from here? Um, what if you just jump into um, some more comp- some components? How about some drivetrain stuff real quick? Yeah. So, well, a bunch of new things going on there, including the new TRP 7 and 12 speed groups for downhill and most everything else, respectively. And uh, we got a first look up on the site. We should be getting a set in to review fairly soon here, we're told. So what caught your eye about that? Well, just that it's a, that it's a full drivetrain this time. So going with, you know, the what well, the other two um, S-branded um, companies do, it's like it's an ecosystem as much as anything. Um, not quite as much because they, they're not going to say, well, you have to use our chain or anything like that because they're using a KMC chain. Um, but are saying that it gives you a better retention with that chain. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's a full drivetrain. Like you tested, if I'm not mistaken, did you, you bolted onto a bycatchery, the, the first iteration of this system. Um, and there's been some improvements. Um, and now it is a full drivetrain. They made a cassette, which, um, I think they're, they're, <laughs> they're agreeing is a really hard thing to do, but the, the, the gear steps look the same as the new T-type, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, no, they are they are a bit different. Sorry, I meant the four, I meant the forty four. Two largest gears are the same, but it it gets yes exactly different once you get farther down the cassette. Yeah, so first look when you're seeing when you're looking at it, you see that same sort of gear step from forty four to fifty two that you're seeing on the new T type. That's what caught yep. my eye. That that's the same. Yeah. yeah, what's interesting with the steps on their cassette is that the jump from third to second is notably big, uh, and so they've kind of shuffled around the the big jump a little bit it's percentage wise nearly as big as the uh 42 to 52 step on the older standard eagle uh that's not quite that big but it's pretty damn close so they've kind of snuck one real big jump in there still but we'll see um and like you said yeah i reviewed the first iteration of their 12 speed drivetrain and would say that it showed a good bit of promise but just the refinement wasn't quite there yet like a lot of the little details were a little rough around the edges and so i mean i think there's a lot of potential for the second iteration of it to be quite good if they've kind of figured out how to refine the little things here and there that needed a little attention on the first one because the core of it was pretty solid and there's some clever ideas going on like for example the hall lock lever that 
flip little lever you flip back and forth that locks the B pivot out to help keep the derailleur steady and some clever little details like that. It just first one wasn't quite as refined as one might have hoped for. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that hall lock and what was your impression on it because it's still there and it seems like it has been refined a little bit um, as well as like the clutch and some other aspects of it that um, do you feel that's a good that's a good a- approach to stability in that department? Yeah, I think it helps. Of course, SRAM has done something, well, mechanically very different, but in some ways functionally a bit similar with the new transmission since there's not really a moving B pivot on those either, apart from if you hit the derailleur hard enough to kind of do the breakaway feature, which is just exactly what the hall lock does as well. So That's a great point, actually, because it really is a similar approach to this sort of same thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, implemented extremely differently, of course. The TRP drivetrain's not a direct mount like the T-Type is and uses a normal derailleur hanger and so on and so forth. But in some ways, the end result's actually kind of similar. And it is... Um... I think I just like, fact check me here, but it is micro spline only. Is that right on the new cassette? Yeah, that's right. Yep, for the twelve speed uh, trail bike one, and then the the DH ones seven speed onto a hyperglide kind of older standard. Um, so yeah, I mean, well, but it, it's light at least per their claimed weights. We've not yet got it in hand to verify. Uh, kind of cassette weight is. XTR level almost exactly and uh, just a handful of grams lighter than the new T-type cassettes so that's way down there and um, derailleur weight is pretty competitive at least again as per stated numbers and so they're definitely positioning it to be a high-end premium thing and you know we've seen some of the more other recent attempts at breaking into the drivetrain market like MicroShift and uh box kind of aiming for a bit more budget oriented scenarios is kind of their way of breaking into the market and trp's taking the opposite approach there so it'll be interesting to see if they've really managed to make a proper high-end setup there and we'll be finding out a lot more soon so i was gonna say it's kind of the opposite of their approach to brakes where they definitely play in the budget brake world more than anything um granted their dhr evo brakes are, are lovely. I like I like TP, TRP as a brand. Um, I think those brakes are quite good. Um, but in the brake department, their bread and butter is in, you know, in budget brakes. Yep, absolutely. Um, I mean, sort of branded under Tektra rather than Indeed. TRP. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's all the same company. And uh, yeah, so I mean, like you said, they've at this point got a full range of brakes, but they are definitely very big players in the more entry-level game there and they're taking things differently in the drivetrain world so again curious to see how it goes uh we'll be finding out a lot more soon on that one too so like i think seg- that's a good segue into um a little bit of t-type real quick since we were talking about it during that um so i did pop into to sram's booth and um you were the one that did all the sort of the initial reviewing on the the new uh, t-type transmission it was nice for me to get my hands on it and of course i am uh, more than anything, I'm really excited about the replaceable parts on there. And I wanted to get in there and actually take those parts apart, which they were allowing you to do in the booth. So I took the um, the whole parallelogram parts that are replaceable off, and it's super easy. Um, I, I think that's a that's a big story. And I think I, I alluded to this a little bit in my um, durability study that potentially that that's a necessary thing because the, now the um, 
the mounting of the derailleur is so so stiff. There is no movement from a derailleur hanger, so you could expect potentially a little bit more damage in that area, possibly in that pivot zone. Um, but the override clutch is also very protective. So um, either or, it's an expensive derailleur that has a tendency or potential to get you know damaged. Um, and now you can potentially replace the parts that were damaged for very little money or just cosmetically. So in my derailleur hostile environment, our derailleurs here look awful, every one of them. <laughs> they look terrible. So um, these parts are the ones that are the ones getting hit by rocks. So replace them if you don't like them, how they look anymore. And maybe in the future we see, hmm, I don't know, maybe color options for those to try and tie it into your uh, aesthetics of your bike. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they go with that. And we are still kind of curious to find out pricing on those replacement parts. That's a detail we've not been able to get out of SRAM just yet. But like you said, it is super easy to take it apart. I've pulled one apart myself. And uh, did you also get to play around with the cage replacement bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, did all of that. Right. Because the tool-free, no flying spring Yes. simplicity of the no, cage No flying spring. That's nicely put. <laughs> yeah. That's key. Um yeah, so there's, we got a little video of that in our first look on the whole transmission. We'll link to that in the show notes. And But they've done a really good job of making it modular and easy to take apart. And so if the parts are actually available, it'll be pretty cool to be able to pull all that stuff apart and replace the little bits without having to just blow the whole derailleur up and be done with it. Definitely. And that, you know, that's something we did kind of get into a little bit on the durability of the existing stuff. Well, and mechanical, because that was a very vulnerable area and the cause of many derailleur replacements. And so they've recognized that and made those parts placeable. So kudos to them, honestly. It's great. Yep. No, it all seems really cool. And um, I've been spending a bunch of time on, well, a couple iterations of it now. And uh, you now have the Yeti SB135, their new short travel 27.5 bike with a XO transmission. Dylan Woods got a Revel Ranger with Nexo transmission. So we've got a bunch of sets of it floating around Blister now and a bunch of folks spending time on it. So we'll have a lot more to say about it soon with some more complete review of the whole system with opinions from a bunch of our folks. So stay tuned for that. I think you had one more topic to hit on our little drivetrain chat here. Yeah, and I think this and this definitely falls in the drivetrain category. Was the was the classified um, hub now going into um, a mountain rear hub? Uh, this is a very unique product. Um, something I'm excited about. Uh, I'd love to get on one. They were giving rides on it. I just didn't have any gear with me or the ability to go for a ride um, while we were there. It was pretty rushed. But you know, so going back to an internally two-speed hub um, with a 12-speed cassette on it allows you to have, I think it's about a 530% gear range um, with the internally electrically shifted, you know, I guess, underdrive component of that hub. That's awesome. <laughs> and it's got this little, um, so your your shifter for the rear hub is a small little rocker switch that, hand, that, that lands on the left side of the handlebar and can kind of tuck neatly in between your dropper post lever and your grip. So I think that's got lots of potential. I'd love to get on one of those and you know, really put it through its paces. Um, there's been, you know, pseudo two-speed systems like this before. Um, what was that? Um, what was that SRAM uh, underdriven uh, front? The Hammerschmidt. Uh, the Hammerschmidt, yes. And while that felt great in one-to-one, as soon as you underdrove it, it felt like you were dragging a trailer. Right. The amount of drag in the, the lower range on that was pretty horrendous. 
which apparently doesn't seem to be the the case of something that they're you know bragging about as the, on their rear hub is not the case on this. So we'd love to get um, get on one. Did you get a chance to check it out, really? Or yeah, a little bit. Seems neat and kind of like you said, a big part of what they're promoting with it is that it's a way to end up with much smaller gear jumps without having to have a crazy 18 speed cassette or something weird. And it's all packaged pretty compactly. It's not terribly heavy. I forget the exact numbers, but it's few hundred grams over a normal hub but not a massive amount and um you know for kind of xc-ish use case i think it's where it sort of seems most applicable to me where you're kind of more concerned about keeping a tight cadence and all that kind of stuff but neat option there for for those folks and yeah unique and um well i think really actually quite cool so definitely an interesting concept and we will see what we can do about getting the set and giving it a proper review so uh that's definitely on the list as well here um and then to kind of moving into some of the bigger more general trends that we saw rather than quite so much about specific products one of the things that i found notable and interesting and heartening from my perspective was the proliferation of dh bikes again and in many cases from companies that either haven't made one in a while or haven't ever made one and I mean got whole too many to list off but for example the really crazy prototype that Yeti put together for Richie Rude who is apparently going to be racing some downhill again this year um carbon fiber high pivot six bar suspension layout kind of just really wild looking bike and uh talking to Ryan Palmer their marketing manager about it and Apparently, they only started working on that bike with kind of Richie making the request to get something and start racing some DH again middle of last year. So they turned that around astonishingly quickly. Yeah, that's a staggering um, about speed to get to. And and we wouldn't be so, you know, like, you know, awestruck if it had been an alloy bike, but it's a carbon bike. So you're like knowing how long those things take to get from inception to an actual working prototype is pretty incredible. Yeah, and it's pretty refined looking. It it doesn't look like some slapped together prototype. Uh, so not too much info about the particulars of the frame yet, but um, they were showing it off. We got a bunch of photos up on the site, and uh, it's a very cool looking bike. And just, but to my bigger point, you know, there were a ton of these showing up from you know Yeti Marin's got a prototype DH bike which incidentally is a horse link which is a bit of a departure from them as well uh historically been doing linkage driven single pivots and then a whole bunch more Nico Malali's a couple of iterations of his frameworks bike including the new steel front triangled one were around and Contra's got their DH bike that they're going to have racing on the World Cup this year under Abby Hoagie and uh Anna Newkirk and um, a bunch of bigger companies too. Nuke Proof got a new Dissent, GT with a new Fury, on and on and on. There were just a load of DH bikes showing up again. And we were talking about this a bit a couple days ago, but DH bikes have definitely had something of a lull in the market. And, you know, I think a lot of that's been driven by the fact that Enduro bikes have certainly gotten immensely better in the last handful of years and i think a lot of folks have decided that their enduro bike is adequate for the park riding that they do and they don't need to own a separate dh bike now which is fair enough um but 
I do think that I've heard from a bunch of people who have said something along the lines of like, oh, my new enduro bike is just as good as my downhill bike was. And that I'm not really willing to go for. There's a reason downhill bikes still exist. I think a lot of the people who are saying that are comparing a very new enduro bike to a downhill bike from five or seven or whatever years ago. And turns out downhill bikes have gotten better in the last few years too. And, you know, that's not to say that everyone needs one. I am not making that case, but downhill bikes are still pretty special. You can do a lot of stuff and get away with a lot of stuff on them that you kind of can't on anything else. And there's a reason they exist. And I am very happy to see a bunch more of them showing up because they're just something that I don't want to see die out at the consumer level and have just kind of be the formula one race car that gets built for the teams but not available for mass consumption and the fact that there are as many popping up as there are is heartening to me yeah and to me also and man, we spoke about this a little bit i said that's my favorite kind of um racing to watch in, in the mountain bike arena is, is is dh and world cup dh is something i look forward to um every year and of course season's coming up um Super excited, like just to see. Well, for instance, Yeti and Richie out there. That'll be just like some that's just so fun about the whole thing. And um, we don't know what his schedule is. I don't know if you did you get that from Ryan at all. Is there going to be like just surprise Richie's here this time and that's it kind of thing? I don't know any of the details yet. We'll have to wait and see on that. I uh, know, just it just um, I think it just adds a little bit of spice to that season. It's going to be fun. It is, and. That's going to be cool. So, yeah, very excited for racing to get going again. Bit of a late start this year, but um, we'll get there. And, uh, well, I suppose we'll have to wait and see what the broadcasting looks like and how all that goes, you know. But fingers crossed that Discovery can kind of keep the ball rolling there because DH racing is awesome and I'm excited to watch a bunch of it. Yeah, me too. And, yeah, we'll um, we'll hold judgment on the broadcasting component until we've actually seen what happens, right? <laughs> Oh, indeed. I'm not saying that I necessarily think that it's going to be a problem or anything, but, you know, it's as of yet a bit of an unknown quantity, and I just want it to be good. That's all. Yeah. And I guess moving on to the last thing on our list here in the broader trends category, we've got the proliferation of headset cable routing, which, well, certainly not anything like ubiquitous yet is popping up more and more on more and more different bikes. And so haven't checked it out a bit and seen a bunch of new bikes with it. What are your thoughts at this juncture? Well, I'm very much coming from like, I, I really want it to be done right. I, I like, I haven't come up with a firm opinion on it at this point. So first of all, let's let's start off with the fact, was what was the problem needed to be fixed in the first place? Um, there's that component to it. And I know, shrug. <laughs> uh, don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm coming from, is that I think it is conceivable to me that a good implementation of it could be just fine, pleasant enough to work on, no, not too significantly worse than any regular internal routing from that perspective indeed but and at I... the end of the day even the the best implementation of it i still just don't see what problem it solves like the the ceiling in my head is that it is not too much of a pain in the ass and that's kind of the upper limit of how good it seems like it could be to me right well so 
I can appreciate it. And here's, and here's why for, for on, on, on one other level is that I, um, yeah. Okay. So I obsess about sort of getting the cable lens and cable routing and noise-free cable, you know, installations, super custom, as clean as I can get a cockpit to look makes me happy. That's something I enjoy doing. And the potential there um, is greater with this internal routing to have a very, very, very clean um, cockpit, right? And very little noise in that regard as well with cable slapping around and whatever you use, whatever method you use to, you know, corral your cables, right? So that part I think is cool. Is it is it worth the um, the the, and, and the extra you know headache I suppose of what it can cause in the the service side of things? Um, and you brought up a good point where you know we're on the review side. You can be switching components more often than maybe other folks. So the the whole you know brake lines and things like that that might have to be rebled does create more of a of a problem for someone that's switching parts out more frequently. Now conversely, if you don't do that and it's set up right. Um, I've mentioned this to you. I was like, headsets in my area aren't um, something that need replacement basically ever because we're in a very dry area. Um, but Seattle's a completely different story and you do have to change headset bearings, don't you? Right. And so, like you said, I mean, if headsets do just get contaminated and rusty up in my neck of the woods and if you now have to take apart your derailleur and dropper cable and re-bleed your brakes when you're replacing your headset, that's not great and um and like you said i mean from my personal case i'm doing things like swapping brakes on bikes all the time for review purposes and so for me internal routing of any sort even if it's not going through the headsets a significant extra irritation just because you've got to do more hose cutting and brake bleeding and buying new fittings to reconnect everything and all that kind of stuff but i do certainly grant that that's not the experience of the average consumer and for most folks it's kind of more like you've got your bike set up and got your stuff on it and maybe you upgrade your brakes once over the life of the bike or something but it's not nearly as regular an occurrence but the flip side of that is that if you were say on a trip on vacation somewhere and crash break your brake lever or whatever um it does just make installing your replacement brake more involved than it might be otherwise and um still does have some downsides as far as just getting yourself back up and running quickly if need be so yeah it, there's 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 lots of things to 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 consider isn't there um and weighing in the, the the benefits versus the you know the headaches i suppose is is definitely one component of it i'd like to i'm not going to take i'm going to take the stand here today and say that i'm going to be sort of an open book on it i I'd, I'm going to be the first to say that was implemented well. The drawbacks and the advantages sort of weigh out. It's okay. I'm I'm not I'm not going to be a hater in this department, but I'm not sure that's going to be universal across the board here as how his implementation goes. Yeah, I'm striving for that, but am coming at it from the point of being deeply skeptical, but willing to be proven wrong i guess that's where i'm gonna that's where i'm gonna come from because <laughs> it's gonna be so polarizing um either way but you know it's sometimes innovation is going to be polarized and i can think of lots of examples that now we have completely accepted that are now basically what is the norm so at first it was like oh my god you're gonna do that and now we're like wow that's all we do so if we get to that point that's okay yeah i do like the aesthetics of it 
Um, I think there's been quite a few, you know, areas and SRAM's new brakes have, have really clean aesthetics as they're, t- they're really tucking them in close to the bar. They're angling, you know, where the, where the compression nut and the barb go in, into the bar more. So it's a super clean installation. And then you couple that with some inter- some headset routing. It's going to look good. Yeah. The flip side of that is that it actually makes the house is a little bit more susceptible to slapping on the bar and making mo- noise rather than having them tucked out a little farther, in my experience. Okay. But, so in that particular regard, I think it's actually a slight step backwards. And you can clean it up. Like, if you get the hose lengths right and use the little stem clips that they send and stuff, Are you talking it about definitely on the, possible. On the SRAM side with their new brakes? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, that's that's something I noticed. I did install some of those brakes recently and found that there's a very small window of getting the cable length right, very small, before it's too tight or it's got a little bit too much of a bow in it then then does slap the bar absolutely right yeah you can make you can make it dialed but the it's more requires more fine tuning of hose length than was the case with the older style routing which i suppose is another knock against internal routing generally because if you have to have the hose length super dialed and then are taking centimeter off it every time you disconnect the brake to to reroute it you're causing yourself a headache there but uh we can not keep beating that particular dead horse (laughs) okay sounds good a lot of interesting stuff and like i said we've got a whole lot of new gear showing up either already or very soon to review so stay tuned to the site we'll have a whole lot more coming up and simon great talking about bikes with you as always yeah sounds fantastic all right have a great rest of your day david All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, I just want to say thanks to Simon for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.